Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. In this episode, we're going to be dealing with the notions of design build and who better to bring in than your prof and mine, Christine Liu. Uh, some of you guys have had her in first year. Most of you guys are familiar with her as a first year or second year studio instructor. Um, some of you guys have also uh, perhaps had her for extracurricular involvement uh, or critiques on that front. And some of you guys might have friends that are familiar with Christine who also teaches sometimes in interior design. So I, I think that I could talk about Christine's background, but the best person to introduce her and all of her accolades would be her. So welcome, Christine. Oh, hi, Vince. Nice to uh, not see you, but to uh, chat with you in the world of uh, a pandemic. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, you know what? It's not every day that I get a freak. Uh, just uh, I think it would be worth mentioning, ladies and gentlemen. Christine, you are a freak of architecture. What does that mean? It does not mean freak, F-R-E-A-K, but freak, F-R-A-I-C. So I'm a now. <laughs> so I'm now a fellow of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada. Um, it's a national organization that advocates for um, our profession, and uh, it is uh, was a surprising honor. I looked at the list of other uh, fellows uh, nominated this year, and it is uh, pretty humbling to be alongside some pretty um, amazing architects. You know what, I also want to put out there because a lot of students don't really know what it takes to be in that echelon. And I think that, it, and I, I don't want to be kind of pandering to you, but the reality is that to be even nominated, let alone uh, get that designation is pretty impressive. And to have a person in your position with that designation teaching in our program is pretty damn impressive. I mean, there's only a handful of those that we've got in our department. I think we got uh, Marco Polo, um, I believe Yu Thong, um, George, George, and uh, I think Kendra at one point had, oh, sorry, Kendra had it. Um, yes. um, and that, that's pretty much all I can think of off the top of my head. But, uh, yeah. yeah, you're making me feel more self-conscious about <laughs> the accomplishments uh, because it is, uh, it was frankly quite a surprise. I mean, typically, well, I shouldn't say typically. I mean, many of the fellows are, um, well, all the fellows are very well accomplished. So um, I'm, in my opinion, I feel like I'm a little bit on the younger end of the fellows. Um, uh, and to be a fellow, you can be a licensed registered architect, which I am as well, but you can also be uh, focused in like education or uh, architectural education. You can be a practicing architect or an advocate or closely aligned to the profession. So it mm -hmm. is kind of um, not solely for registered architects, as I said, but it is um, kind of an interesting uh, mix of people who all are very interested in the field. So we'll get to the reasons why you actually merited that designation, but I think it'd be important just so that our listeners can know the background, because again, some students might be familiar with you as an instructor, but I don't think they know you as a practitioner. They certainly don't know your pedigree. So let, let's just go back and get a you know, quick synopsis of how you got to where you are now. Um, okay, so I grew up in North York. Uh, 
of Taiwanese Canadian descent. And then uh, uh, eventually, actually I attended University of Toronto for one year studying landscape architecture. Uh, found it wasn't quite right for me. So then I uh, moved on to University of Waterloo to do my undergraduate and graduate degrees in architecture. Um, while I was at Waterloo, as many of you probably know, they have a co-op program. So um, I definitely took advantage of that and traveled the world. So I've worked in, uh, well, obviously Toronto, uh, but London, England, and New York City. So, and as well as doing uh, terms abroad, like obviously the Rome term is very popular and uh, a term of study in Montreal as well. So, um, yeah, those, uh, the, my years at Waterloo were obviously very informative for me. And then uh, post-graduation, then I've, um, I settled in Toronto. Uh, my family's here, most of my friends are here, which is great. Uh, and the architecture scene here is uh, constantly evolving. So um, after a couple of years, I became like a licensed architect with the Ontario Association of Architects. Uh, and joined the REIC as a member pretty well after graduating university. Uh, working for a bunch of firms in Toronto, um, like Kearns Mancini Architects, uh, Raw Design for a number of years. Um, just uh, so Those are just some of the firms I was with for a longer period of time. Um, and in those firms, getting experience doing things like uh, anything from design to uh, a little bit of contract administration, lots of drawing, 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 mm -hmm. and a lot of project management, which actually was the part um, that I maybe enjoyed the most, uh, as well as like coordination with uh, other disciplines, like engineering disciplines, consultants, etc. So uh, I guess like any architect, pretty broad in terms of like experiences in an office, I think, and then... Um, yeah, because hopefully, as you know, like when you become like a licensed architect, you really have to know how to do an extremely wide variety of things in an office and also be able to manage a wide variety of uh, building typologies. Mm -hmm. So then, I, I mean, that's the conventional path to architectural practice. And then you were able to knock that out fairly well. And of course, you, you got licensed working on a bunch of projects. But I think one thing that a lot of people might not necessarily be aware of is um, your own firm, Lou Webb. Could you elaborate on that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. So. Yeah, kind of, kind of important. <laughs> that other part. Um, so Lou Webb, my last name is Lou and my partner's name, Alan Webb. So uh, so we have a firm called Lubeb Projects that started, I guess, maybe around 10 years. No, not no, 10 years ago. No. Actually, so we were also married. So we're married for coming on eight years. So uh, whenever, what, what was the, was it first time the Gladstone, the, the, the ball project, the balloon yeah. project? Yeah. Was so 12 years ago? I don't remember anymore. I'm good. Anyways, wow. So regardless, so a while ago, um, so what happened was uh, Alan and I started dating. And then, uh, <laughs> I think uh, Alan's, um, Alan is also a licensed architect. And prior to, um, well, while he was studying architecture, he made um, friends with a bunch of really great guys and they started um, a group called Wabi. So any of you who really partied hard in the uh, early late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. Early 2000s. Clearly Vince was one of those that partied no, hard. No, I just remember having to deal with those uh, fallouts, but okay, go on. 
have no idea what you're talking about. And then, I don't ask, don't tell, man. Uh, a lot of like, so if you're interested in electronic music, the scene in Toronto and a bit beyond that, uh, they were pretty, um, I guess, pivotal in that mm -hmm. scene. Um, so Alan had a lot of experience in this group. They did everything from like kind of the music end to like projections and like overall like kind of design of the space. So Alan had some previous experience with that. And then what was happening was Alan and I were dating and then um, actually one of the shows that still exists um, is called Come Up To My Room. So it's an annual um, exhibition hosted by the Gladstone Hotel that Vince referenced. Um, and um, I had a few friends who had partici participated in it previously. It's kind of like um, temporary installations uh, in this hotel that's in the Queen West neighborhood of Toronto. Um, so, I mean, it always looked really fun. Like I had always gone as like a participant to see the installations or the parties. And I thought it'd be fun to do it with Alan. Um, and also I'd been working in the office for a while and maybe doing a little bit of the same type of work, maybe a bit too often. So I was looking for, something else, something else to do. And uh, it just seemed like a great opportunity. So, I, I mean, it's more than just simply, you know, veering from conventional architectural practice. And it's not just simply decorating for parties. I mean, if you look at the range of work, especially as it's evolved um, since it's since New Web's inception, I mean, what would you say is the kind of trajectory of the firm and, and what makes for interesting projects for for your firm yeah i mean maybe i mean it's uh, i mean you can always go to our website leuwebb.ca to see examples of our work um mm -hmm. obviously you're just listening to us talk about it but um the work i would describe as um uh i would say our approach is architectural and the reason i would say that is we're very interested in sight um, which I think is uh, that approach may be very or slightly different than some other artists. Mm -hmm. And we do describe ourselves as artists and architects. So um, the reason I say site is that um, we're interested in site in like the broadest uh, way possible. So we think about site in terms of, you know, the kind of physical realities of like, you know, how tall is a space? How wide is it? How many people can fit into it? You know, what can you view when you walk through that door? Mm -hmm. So the kind of physical realities of it, but also the kind of broader ones of say like cultural, like how does it, um, how does a particular space or situation relate to a uh, larger context within the city or, or not in the city? Um, we think about geography a lot. So, mm -hmm. um, we did a project at Fort York. Actually, I was going to comment on that one. That's a yeah. very, very notable one on site. Yeah. Yeah. So that we did a well. We've done two projects now for Nuit Blanche at Fort York. Um, one was at the historic site, um, and it involved us doing some like historical research. So again, thinking about site in terms of history, geography. Um, Fort York, if you know, used to be the original shoreline of the city of Toronto. So we're kind of interested in evoking the the water kind of aspect of that site. And then also thinking about how um, Fort York actually exists as a pretty significant open green space within the city, uh, right adjacent to a number of like pretty huge condos, mm -hmm. um, which in this time and age of being in a pandemic really seems like that much more valuable. But yeah, so kind of, I mean, that's kind of what I would describe as our approach. We think about site and often our inspirations are derived from site in the way that I at least define it. 
So I just want to go back to that project though, because I, I think for our listeners, obviously there will be in the show notes, the link to the website, but oh. if you, if you take a look at the images, I mean, it's a beautiful piece at night. And I believe you also had uh, Omar Khan um, involved in, in, in that as well. Not the one from Sunny B, but another. Um, I was going to say not the uh, Omar Khan, but another the yes. Omar Khan. Yes, yes. I, yes. I know it's like John Smith. But um, yes. so I, I want to touch on not only the variability and scale on site that you were describing, but I think it's also worth describing the bespoke and the kind of integration with uh, emerging technologies and uh, like, I, I mean, I look at the, the kind of basic Arduino stuff that's in some of your work all the way through to the more um, kind of uh, static conventional architecture, but still is playful. Um, and that does require custom fabrication. Like uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the, uh, the Zeidler. Uh, yes, the spheres. Uh, yeah, spheres. Yeah. So I, I mean, do you want to describe how technologies and fabrication really come to play in the in the work that Lou Webb does? Um, it's a challenging question to answer because the reason I would mention is that because it's not a starting point for us. So our starting point, as I mentioned, is site. And then if we um, have or if we are inspired by a particular technology or um, you know, I can't even say specifically how it's woven its way itself, like particular technologies or particular methods of fabrication have mm -hmm. woven themselves into our projects. Um, I mean, part of it is just like um, Alan recently took, uh, I mean, we're always learning, we're always doing like kind of elements of continuing education. So Alan took a course at OCAD that was about casting and that mm -hmm. suddenly became like a really interesting part of our practice. Um, and then Omar is actually just a good friend of ours. And so we were chatting and he said, oh, you know, um, you know, maybe we can work together sometime. So it is um, not to be flippant in, our, in my response about it, but it is sort of, um, I don't want to say it just kind of happens. I mean, we have this repository of like things at the back of our mind. We're like, you know, I really want to investigate this technology or I really want to investigate this type of fabrication, but it really has to... Um, fit with our concept. If it doesn't, then we'll just put it on hold um, for some other time, which actually kind of relates to um, teaching uh, in architecture, because mm -hmm. sometimes you'll see a student just like holds on for dear life for a particular idea that just is not relevant for a project. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, maybe you should let that go. You're going to do a whole bunch of other projects as a student, as a professional. So maybe there's a better fit. So I think actually that's something maybe we've learned as in our education, it's like, yeah, there, there are times when things will work out well. And there are other times where it's just like, yeah, you know, maybe it's uh, there's a better opportunity somewhere else. Yeah, I would agree. I, I like to tell my students in first year, especially because that, that's that's symptomatic of first year where they just refuse yes. to let go and, and they want to do everything. And I always say to a student in architecture, you can do anything and everything you want. You just can't do it all at the same time. Right. Or at the time that you need it, the, like that you that you're at right now. But I want I'll talk about teaching in a moment, but I just want to finish off a little bit more on your your firm. Um, yes. Because I just recently finished an episode with uh, a, several guests um, about design build, right? Right. And I, I think that when one looks at the work that you've done in Lou Webb, um, I, I think one of the biggest questions would be, okay, so she, that's what she's doing now. How did she get there? And, and on one level, I was talking to the design build uh, uh, panel, and oh, right. we just, we kind of said, you know, it, it's really about getting a start. Um, and, and, you know, once you start, it's become addictive system where you just kind of keep on building, keep on learning. 
uh, got any ways to recommend or what would you recommend to students that are interested in kind of following the the, the footsteps to get to where you're at in terms of design build at least? Um, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, um, Alan and I have both spent a fair amount of time, yeah, a fair amount of time on site as architects. So kind of um, observing how contractors build things and obviously through a continuing education and just general knowledge about how things work. So how things go together is um, partially um, part of observing what's around us and really kind of digging down. Um, for us, when we started, we were definitely making a lot of it ourselves. And, um, you know, we were working on tight budgets. And what it meant was we were often like hanging out literally at Home Depot or whoever. And maybe we'll have to say not uh, well, a big box uh, hardware store, and then um, I think it's a little too late for that, Chris. It's too late. Sorry about that. And then, um, and then just literally cruising the aisles and picking up things. It's like, okay, well, this is like a spring of some sort. Can we reuse this, or reconfigure it, or modify it, or adapt it to um, use it to like suspend something from a ceiling, for example? So it's mm -hmm. a lot of us buying a ton of stuff from a store and then testing we do so much testing and playing mm -hmm. I, I shouldn't say testing it's a lot of playing like we're just you know it's, okay it's like oh this might work oh that totally didn't work so it's us like buying 50 different things and then returning like 40 of it and then maybe oh you're those one. people oh. we're one of those people for sure but i mean that's kind of like uh, well, a lot of artists are because you have to be pretty resourceful for your funds, but it's it's definitely us playing a lot, a lot. And then the important thing is like, so we've started there being very hands-on. We built a lot of the stuff that we did at first. Mm -hmm. um, as we've gone to kind of bigger, more complex projects, projects that um, literally have to be outdoors and we have to be able to guarantee it for whatever number of years. It's going to be owned by a local arts council, so there's pretty minimal budget for maintenance. So at that point, um, you know, we have to turn to professional fabricators. Um, so they are the ones who um, have experience or are able to like um, warranty the product, etc. But I would say even though we work with fabricators, we're very much involved. We visit constantly, we're always talking. Um, and and while like some of the, our more recent projects have been much larger, um, you know, we will still do mock-ups in our own studio and still understand the basics of how um, they're fabricated and can, um, so the scaling up with a professional fabricator, like I think there's a, um, I think there's an ease in discussion or an ease in understanding like how they would work, how we would approach it and collaborative problem solving. I think that's quite um, valuable and hopefully our collaborators appreciate that because uh, we have like, we've developed a good team of people that we often work repeatedly with. So yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, with, with respect to the collaboration, I, I also want to commend you on a couple of other things. So I don't, I, I don't know what went into your Frake application, but I do know from my experience with you Nothing, over the years. Nothing, because I don't know anything about it. It's well, all well, other people that do it, apparently. Okay, I, no, I, I, I get that, but oh. the, the, I don't know what went into the application, but what I do know from personal experience is that you've been a very good mentor to certainly students, um, and sometimes even outside, I've, I've done a couple of extracurricular projects and I've drawn on you just to get you as a, an extra set of eyes to make sure that the project looked right or worked within a certain artistic uh, community. But I also want to draw attention to the fact that you were 
or you still are perhaps, uh, you, you have curated many exhibitions and you've actually been, you know, one to lead, say, for example, Grow Up, right, where you have, uh, you know, taken it upon yourself to pay it forward, essentially, to kind of uh, ensure that certain events are there to allow for emergent designers to really have a platform to showcase their work. So how did you get that level of involvement? I had no idea that you're following your career so closely. <laughs> this is uh, kind of wait, wait, what? Come on, man. I Oh. Uh, you, you're under my watch. Come on. That's very uh, flattering. Let's see. So how did we get involved with Grow Up? So Grow Up is an annual exhibition based on the themes of like landscape and urbanism, kind of how we as humans kind of relate to our uh, natural world or not so natural world as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had participated in that exhibition as artists um, and that show is actually hosted also by the Gladstone Hotel. So speaking again about kind of continued collaborations or really great relationships, the Gladstone Hotel has really been like one of our um, kind of phenomenal kind of patrons or supporters of our work. Mm-hmm. So uh, we became good friends with a curator who was Victoria Taylor. She was stepping away and then uh, we kind of stepped into that role as curators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the way that you described it was quite well because um, our approach is very much about um, I guess, nurturing, facilitating, uh, and encouraging emerging artists Mm -hmm. who uh, may be exhibiting for the very first time uh, and may not be so familiar about how to execute a project or, you know, um, you know, how to literally like kind of mount it within a space or how to promote the project, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. um, that's been very fulfilling for us Um, as to whether like that's kind of one arm of our projects or, or our uh, companies. So we curate, we do um, permanent public artwork, we do mm-hmm. temporary uh, installations. Um, and then Alan and I are both uh, educators as well, and we're licensed architects. Um, so uh, we have many, we have many talents. That sounds mm-hmm. a bit obnoxious to say. We have many interests. That's a better way to say it. Well, I mean, you are, I mean, between the two of you, there is a great deal of coverage. I mean, from the academic to profession to service, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that that you guys easily address. But I want to come back to the fact that you are an educator and that you've also been instrumental in overseeing like, like projects like the Grow Up, where you are a mentor. I mean, let's talk about the capacity to support and nurture. Um, so if you were to tell someone who's interested in doing design builds or you know installation pieces what would be one really good tip to pass forward uh just do it i think you just got to do it somehow or um and not to make it sound like that it's super easy to do it's in fact very difficult to do mm-hmm. um everything from like figuring out how much stuff will be or figuring out how to build something and then finding a spot or finding some sort of client like you just gotta throw yourself into it I think there's no other way um there are some great resources in the city of Toronto I think um they do a pretty good job of there are some organizations that do a good job of like um I guess uh facilitating um emerging designers and Mm -hmm. certainly design build and temporary installations have become increasingly popular over the last like 10-15 years so uh, there are actually many opportunities I would say 
or make your own opportunities as as people like to say like real um, kind of entrepreneurial people would like to say um yeah like as you know in our experience like we just kind of did it I, would, I just wanted to like try something out we did it kind of for fun and it worked out well and then we just kind of kept going with it hmm. so i'm going to ask you because you've seen a huge swath of uh, those types of design build projects, those installation pieces, whether it's Nuit Blanche, you know, grow up, come up to my room, Toronto design on site, everything. So uh, critically, I mean, you're not the name projects, but can you describe perhaps one of the worst projects you've seen? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. It better not be one of my kids' projects. I well, yeah. Wait, you mean as like installations? Yeah, let's just, I mean, just describe um, it and just say how, like, whether, like, I, I've seen stuff where it's really either incomplete or things are inaccessible, right? Um, it's so esoteric, people don't get it. Uh, I've seen things which are so pandering that you, you just go, wow, that's, that, that's so Mickey Mouse, right? I mean, what... What are some really bad, what's a really bad example of an installation piece that you've seen? You know, it's funny. I think like in terms of short term memory, like I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but like short term, sometimes I think, man, that was terrible. Mm-hmm. But my long term memory of projects is actually like a really great ones. I'm sorry to disappoint oh. you. I know, oh, but what I would on. say in my recollection of my reaction to poor projects, it would be usually poor execution. It's like, well, it could be a good idea if only they had picked the right material or uh, selected the right space or spent more time fabricating it or had a higher degree of craft or something. Like there was something terrible in the execution that was just like completely underwhelming Hmm. and completely detracted from the intent or the concept or whatever that was just so glaring that you just can't but stare at a mess and think, well, oh, well, at least they sort of tried, maybe. Well, you know what? It's funny you should mention that because I've actually had one of those projects. I'll give an example of that one. Because <laughs> you I, give the example. Well, because well, as you know, I, I, I don't see color very well, right? So oh, right. it was one of those Nuit Blanche projects. And let me tell you something. People that design Nuit Blanche projects should be aware that everything kind of mutes down for a huge percentage of the population is colorblind. But I digress. Um, so huh. one installation, it was, oh, I can't say where it was because you'll be able to look it up. But um, okay. it was basically a room where uh, I think the intention was to talk about like children um, and just like how fun and, and to play at night, like it was liberating the children to play at night, that kind of deal, right? So what the <laughs> artists did was they took this white room and they had these little kids, uh, I guess in the day or earlier in the day, they had used finger paint and they had put handprints all over the walls of the room. Okay? okay. So you see all these little kid handprints up until like maybe a meter high, because that's how high yeah. they can reach. And then that's it. But you see all these, little, and then you see random little kids that had clearly tried to get higher. So they jumped up and they hit the wall, but then they dragged their fingers down. Yeah. So it looked like it was a bunch of like, it looks like you were in a place where it was like an abattoir for children or something where like clearly <laughs> there were children there and they were all getting massacred and they're all jumping up and just like trying to jump out the walls, but they couldn't. So they started skidding and like leaving streaks in the walls. And of course I'm, I'm talking to my students because we're all there. We're like, you know, I bring my students out to these new Blanche exhibitions right. and, and I'm like, this is, is this not creepy to all of you guys? And they're like, oh no, not really. And I was like, but it's like, it, it was really weird because of course I didn't see the colors and it was like oh, all these fun, fanciful colors, of the rainbow and stuff. And I was like, whatever. And it just looked like <laughs> blood. It looked like br- brown or blood Ooh. bread or whatever. And I was just like, something's wrong with this room. And, <laughs> and you can understand that like the intention and expression didn't quite align. 
Uh, so that, that's just my learning moment on that one. But uh, Christine, let's come back to the learning and the teaching. So you, 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 made a, you made a name for yourself as an architect. You got licensed. Then, of course, you proceeded to uh, create Lou Web and continue to deal with more creative uh, work on your own with your partner. Well, I should say simultaneously while also working as an architect. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's all happening. And then you said, hey, you know what? I'm, uh, uh, it's too easy. I got too much time on my hands. I'm going to go and spend, I don't know, 15 hours a week teaching. What, what, what prompted Clearly. you to do this? Um, very good question. Um, I guess uh, a colleague from University of Waterloo, well, one of my old professors invited me to teach a studio with her, um, whatever number of years ago. So uh, frankly, it is quite flattering to be asked. And so, because it is so flattering and um, I guess uh, highly coveted. So one says yes, as soon as one is invited. So. Uh, I did that for a term. I really enjoyed it. I'd also like. Um, and that was a studio, correct? That was a studio. That was a studio. Like yeah, year, or... uh, it was third year. Okay. Okay. Um, with Marie Paul McDonald, and then I had also worked as like a teaching assistant when I was in grad school, like a teaching assistant for studios. So I enjoyed that as mm. well. And then um, I taught maybe one or two other studios at University of Waterloo, also enjoyed it. And then uh, actually it was Vincent who invited me to do, I guess, crits for one of your classes. You're talking about me, Vince? That, this yes, one? you. Really? Oh, man. Uh, nice. Wow. This is a number, well, a number of years ago. And then um, there was a, there were openings like contract um, sessional openings. So I applied for that uh, Ryerson. I was uh, surprisingly successful and have continued on. But I mean, that's sort of like the kind of logistics of it. I mean, for me, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And it's, I find it rewarding because it challenges me to think in a way that is very different than the way that I think in offices. So what do you mean? Yeah, I was going to say, so in an office, I'm thinking very much about like logistics and management and kind of flow of projects. And in addition to just the everyday kind of coordination and communicating with other people and moving a project and figuring out how to draw things and detailing, etc. So that's kind of the stuff in an office, but working in a studio, teaching a studio, I find it is about like kind of, well, for me, I think most important is kind of challenging students to, I don't want to say think about a concept or like challenge students to think about an I yeah, let's say a concept, but figure out how to translate that concept into architecture. That's very difficult. And many students, especially in first year, kind of fail with that. They're like, I want to create a something and then they just, and the idea might be interesting, but when you look at it, you're like, that just doesn't make any sense. So um, kind of facilitating a student to make that transition to mm -hmm. architecture is pretty um, potentially really exciting at times. It's really rewarding to see a student kind of figure it out. See, it's interesting that you raise it and, and frame it that way, because I think a lot of students tend to see that, you know, if you teach, it's just because it's an easier way to make an, a living or oh my uh, God. You know, like, no, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> like people like, you know, you talk to people and they're like, well, you know, uh, Vince, I remember you busting my balls when I was in the industry and now you're teaching it must be nice and easy or like, you might you know, just teach 15 hours a day or, you know, 15 hours a week and you call it eight. <laughs> right? I talk uh, 18 hours a day just for the record, but it's yeah. just, it's just really strange how, you know, when 
people in in our position who are you know privileged to teach i, I think it's i think it's an absolute privilege to teach yes. but I, I think the the thing that a lot of people the thing people don't see is just the kind of energy and effort that one puts into teaching I don't think people understand that unlike say teaching, I don't know, chemistry, for example, where, you know, you stand in front of the room and you talk about things and you call it a day and wait for the TAs to do the examination or what have you in studio in particular, you're investing energy. There's a real investment into the student's work and the students don't always see that. Like I think a lot of students, especially in first year, right? We, we both teach in first year often. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of first years see it as an antagonizing relationship, right? And we got to give students they do? a little Okay, I don't know how you teach. Um, uh, so, so they often see it like they're very defensive. They, they, you yes. know, their parents lied to them. Their their loved ones, their teachers lied to them and said that, oh, you know, your your art is amazing, honey, and therefore you're going to be an architect. I, it doesn't make sense, but you know they, that's what they're told. And then when we come and see them, we're we're genuinely <laughs> trying to help them out, trying to provide some insights and feedback to make them get better. And they see it as a huge me versus you kind of thing. And then it's a struggle, as you described, like how you let a kid let go of something without offending him or her, right? And worse still, you know, you run the risk of saying this is not correct. And the kid will just basically give you the finger and say, no, no, mom and dad and my art teacher told me I'm right. And as a result, I'm I'm sticking to my guns here, right? There's such an investment of energy on our parts to kind of mold students properly. And I don't think everyone sees that. And, you know, more power to people that teach studio, because that's a long and hard path. But I would argue, and, and maybe it's just because I'm biased, and maybe now you could, I just want to get your insights on this. Teaching first year is rough, correct? <laughs> like, I mean, you have a, well, I mean, I have a certain level of choice. You certainly have choices when you apply to teach uh, certain courses. Um, well, you do, right? But um, the, the bottom line is that, you know, you could, and I don't want to say it's easier necessarily to teach in fourth year, but there is a greater flexibility where you can teach to something that you're genuinely uh, knowledgeable and interested in. Not to say you don't know first year, but you know, in first year, it's a lot of like, as I compare, it's like teaching your parents how to use email, right? Except times a million, right? Because it's really <laughs> frustrating because there's so many things that they have to know. There's so many things that you expect them to know and they don't. So why is it that you teach in first year, for example? Um, yeah, I, I think you've brought up a number of very uh, good points. I mean, just to address some things you said, like you said, it's a huge investment of energy. It's a huge investment of energy. Like some students at the end of the day will say, can I have an extra crit? And it's like, no, my brain is going to explode. I'm exhausted. I've been speaking for six hours straight. There's no way I'm going to do an extra crit. Like it is, um, it is just physically and mentally and emotionally, I would say, exhausting as well. Oh, just, um, a, just as a side note, um, the yes. best way to tick off a prof is to not show up for studio and then show up the last oh five God. minutes and then go, oh, can I have a crit now? Right. So just, just to follow up on that one. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that, that's a no, big that's one that true. we get a lot. That's exactly the way to make someone angry. It's like, well, I've invested you know, five and a half hours of sitting here, where have you been? It's like, yeah, that's, no, it's completely, and also extremely rude. Um, uh, It's interesting how you compare fourth year and first year. I mean, the thing about teaching, I mean, okay, I like teaching because I find it extremely challenging, right? It's, it's, It's not cushy at all. It's exhausting. I mean, if you think about it, you'll have, say, 16 students tackling the same problem, but the way the method or their approach in tackling the same problem may be completely different. So the way that you um, 
discuss a project with 16 different students will likely be completely different for every single mm -hmm. one of them, right? And it's, there's no kind of blanket way to address 16 different students. And that's kind of part of the exhaustion. Um, but, you know, if you teach like a fourth year student, frankly, um, some of the conversations, because I like to be challenged, uh, can be more interesting, right? We'll be talking more about concepts or about like detailing or something, right? So mm -hmm. that's uh, intriguing to me, but the excitement in uh, first year is that first years are excited, I find. They're just, um, I don't know, for some of them, it's been their dream or they're maybe not so sure about it, but they're willing to give it a shot and they're there and they're like, okay, let's do this. Mm -hmm. Although oddly enough, I find I am sometimes more enthusiastic than the students because sometimes I'll just ask a student to like make a model and they'll just say, that's too much time. And I'll just say, you know what? This is your dream. You're here. I have no doubt that making models was part of that dream and being an architect like architectural student, this is it. This is your mm -hmm. chance to do it. Let's do it. And then it's like, okay, I'll make a model. It's like, oh my gosh. Well, okay, so so here we go. We got a chance for you to tell a bunch of students listening while they're finishing off their studio projects right now. They're listening while they're doing this project, some final project right now, okay? Whether they're working at home or wherever, they're listening. And this is your chance to say, hey, kids, Specifically, specifically the first year kid. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on mom's kitchen with the, the lasagna. Yes, totally. and the, no, no. Uh, but here we go. You have a chance now. What is the one key message to a first year student, right? To, to a first year student working um, away in, in their first year studio, what would be a really important tip that they might not necessarily get? You've taught first year many, many times now, right? And you've taught both in interior as well as architecture. And again, design is design, right? So what is, what is a good tip that you would offer students in first year to succeed? Wow. The reason I'm having trouble answering is because, well, can you it, give me some other answers? Okay. That no, I mean, like, oh, okay. So <laughs> I, I think one, one would be that I get a lot of is, you know, you got to be patient. Um, a lot of students think that they oh. can jump and make a building right off the bat. And they're like, why am I, um, taking a piece of garbage, like I found a, I found a bottle and now I got to make it into a, a kind of architectonic space. Is that even a word, right? Like that kind of thing. Or, you know, yeah. uh, you're asking me to do a dominant, what the hell is a dominant void? Like, why, why are you asking? So you have to tell, like one of the rules I say is like, you got to be patient, right? It's a journey and you got to make sure that you got to trust me a little bit. Uh, believe it or not, I've taught generations of architects and trust <laughs> me, I, I can tell you that you're going to have to be patient. You can, you, again, you, you can't do everything at the same time. You can do any time and everything, but you can't do it all at once, right? So that, that's one thing I would say to tell the students to just learn how to be patient. Obviously, uh, another one would be manage your time. Because a lot of students yes. have huge, huge ambitions to do every single thing. And they want to do like next level crazy. I want to do Frank Gehry stuff, right? And as a result, they do their best to make a model. And they go, oh, crap, I got to draw it. And, you know, you got to say, well, you had to balance your time. You have to, you know, you have to bank your time to make sure you can make the model. And then also knowing full well that that's going to be a real pain in the butt to actually draw. You got to find a way to budget that time to do that. And then don't forget, you have these other courses you have to do, right? So yeah. I think budgeting your time in first year is uh, another thing. Um, I would also say, you know what? Be a sponge. Um, for a lot of first years, pride is one of the worst things yeah. that they can have where they're like, I know this duh or like you always had that one kid that read the one architecture book 
like in high school so that they think they know everything over their peers or that one kid that used SketchUp in high school and now they think that they're Jesus when it comes to a computer, right? And then you just got to say, look, man, pride is going to kill you. And I kind of relish in the fact that it's like, if you're going to be an arrogant little kid, I will make sure that you are put on the cross so that everyone knows what happens, right? That, that you are not better than everybody else, right? And that, you know, you got to learn. Every day you come and you learn. Hell, I come in every day to school and I learn, right? And, and I'm supposed to be a prof. I'm supposed to know stuff, right? So, I mean, I'm just giving you a bunch of ones. to. This I thought of one. Pump. Oh, good, good. Chris, ready, good, ready. Good. Okay, you bought good. me some time. It's embrace ambiguity. Ooh, That's- yes. Because, um, like one example I'll give to you is, uh, you know, when we hand out project outlines, um, inevitably there are many questions from students. Well, what do you mean? Can I do this? Can I do that? What do you want? That is the worst question you could ask. Um, yes, but yes, you have is. to understand it from our perspective. When we, what we do, we spend a lot of time crafting the outlines. And part of what we do is we inherently build in ambiguity. Um, it's very much intentional because we want to leave openings for something that we can't imagine. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. I I was going to say, just to to add to that though, like one, one challenge that I often have in first year, and I would say even right now we're teaching both in second year where I believe it or not, you'd say, okay, uh, give me the elevation. And it's in the, in the, in the, breakdown it says elevation and with the bracket s right or a floor plan bracket s right and the student will actually again this is like a second year student will go so do i have to do all my floor plans right because it only says floor plan or it only says elevation do i have to do all my elevations the question is do i have to then you are going to answer yeah so that that's that's the problem i find that you know that that uh inability to understand ambiguity is is not only um, you know, stifling creativity, but I also think it really reflects poorly on a student, right? Because it's very much a high school mentality, which is well, give me the checkbox. Yeah, totally high school. It's totally high school. Yeah, yeah. and that's, it's that's, like someone tells you what to do. Okay, these are the things. Check, check, check. I did it. It's like no, no, doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. That that kids. That's another tip, right? And it's not just for first years. We see this happening even in masters sometimes. But like, you know, you say, okay, this is the project. This is the this is what you've presented. These are some critical problems. Can you reassess and and, and address them? And then they'll be like, oh, so did you just want me to put an extra door there? Or oh. did you just want is it is it, did you just want me to put another drawing? Or did you want me to just do this? If it's ever a response where it's just do this, just yes, yeah. Then I would have said it, right? If, yeah. if, if it was honestly, if it was, you're just missing a window, you're just missing an extra door to get out from this building, then I would have just said that. Right. But if it's something where, you know, I had to explain something because there's issues that you have to think about that you have to design. I'm not designing it for you. I've, I've done my time designing buildings, right. I'm, I'm teaching, right. That's a totally different exercise. So why do I have to be uh, obliged to design your student work? Right. So that, that's something that really gets me as well. Well, it's also like a student who's just asking, just asking to do basically the minimum. It's like, well, what kind of architect are you going to be? It just sounds kind of pathetic. Yeah. That, that's the other thing I should mention. When you guys get those project outlines, understand it as the bare minimum and understand that if you aspire for the bare minimum, then guess what? That is the highest you will ever achieve. If you aim for the bare minimum, you're going to get a 50 at best, right? You always aspire for more because that's the nature of not only architecture as a praxis, but just even just studio culture, right? Because you have to look to your left, look to your right and see what everyone else is doing, because guess what? You're going to be compared to that 
you know, neighbor of yours, that classmate of yours, because as a prof, I mean, Christine, back me up on this. You would look at, you know, a student's work and then say, well, what did the rest of the class produce in the same conditions, right? And then that's how you're assessed on some level, correct? Yeah, and also like what a student might have um, like created, like just the project before. It's like, well, the student was really strong earlier and then just totally dropped off. What happens? Like it's also looked left, look right and look at yourself. Mm, yeah. So, I, I mean, I know we're getting a little bit long on this one, but Christine, tell me, you've done studio for a long time. We've asked about like the kind of tips and, and suggestions for success in studio. We've also talked about how one can succeed in artistic endeavors, like what you have with some of the smaller projects for Lue, but also for architecture in general. But let's come back to something that's dear, near and dear to your heart, which is teaching in studio. And, you know, you've seen some good stuff, but let's talk about the bad, right? Let's yeah. be honest here. There are lots of great bad train wreck stories. And I always like talking about train wreck stories, right? And you and I have been involved in a lot of train wreck stories together, whether I was a studio master or whether I was adjudicating or dropping the axes on students that you called out for things. So, I mean, do you want to drop any good stories that could enlighten us, make us feel good about ourselves or what have you? You know, I can't remember all the particulars of it, but we were designing a library. Uh, I think it was in first, it must've been in the second half of first year. And the student was sort of, well, constantly out to lunch and would just bring in the most random, tangential, irrelevant ideas into the library project. Um, you know, it was like a, say, four or six week final project. And mm -hmm. then the week before it was due, she said, what do you think if I put a swimming pool in the basement? And I was just oh. like, what are you talking about? And I was just so angry because it was just ridiculous um christine i just want to point out i was the studio master for that and i remember you showed it to me and i was like seriously because you may recall not only was there a not only was there a big um swimming pool but remember the discussion was how many doors are there and there was 27 doors on the building oh my god there were 27 doors on this building, like on the outside. It wasn't even like 27 doors inside <laughs> the building, right? From room to room. There were 27 doors just on the ground floor opening out because the kid was so paranoid about not dealing yes, with egress. But the problem was that none of her egress points were like fire stairs and fire protected. Yeah. It was just like, crazy. just threw more doors on the ground floor. It was crazy town. She was the opposite, at least in the door situation of just, can I just, yeah, no. She was uh, not an excellent student who did not complete her degree. Um, yeah, because that brings the other story, which I think oh. you should, because it's, uh, you should mention this, the other story, because um, that person's no longer around, so we can trash talk and roast her as much as you want. Uh, so so the, the, the project that I was showing in the last second year lecture, do you want to yeah. elaborate on that one? Just so everyone knows the story and knows that it's not just me making it up? Uh, it was a real project. It was- um, Describe it, you gotta describe it. Paint the picture it, now. Uh, it was a two or three story building in Kensington Market with a cafe bookstore on the ground floor or something yep. and then yep. residences above. And it was terrible for many reasons. One, in terms of its site context, it's like she didn't understand the site at all. I question whether she even went to the site. Um, material understanding was and structure was just appalling. Like it was concrete, but not concrete. It was concrete in it was concrete on the outside, but steel structure sometimes, but not always. I don't know. Yeah. It was 
that was an example of a project that's really terrible that at the time you're like holy cow and then a while later you're just like i don't remember that because it was too bad and yeah. i'll try to remember the good stuff but i think we gotta make sure we cover some of the ba basic details that you might be just maybe blacked out of your mind but remember the student basically designed a building and applied various concrete textures to it and then yes. claimed that it was all made out of concrete and of course in first year second term they were obliged to do a wall section whereupon she had miraculously a lot of steel and a yes. catwalk and all these other elements that were yes. very foreign to her project of course when she got the project assessed she failed the studio project and then she asked as studio master she asked me to reassess it I looked at it and I said okay this is weird because it has steel and the renderings are all concrete the plans are all concrete mm -hmm. and then you know we scratched the surface and I realized wait I actually have written a book or two or some resources on steel and I recognize hey this is a wall section from oh wow a certain building and we found it on arc daily and it was verbatim uh, pretty much it um, and uh, basically I said okay so uh, I've reassessed your project, but I'm also citing you for academic misconduct and plagiarism. Yeah. And yeah. you might recall that this kid was so aghast at not getting her way. Uh, but then she said I was, uh, she claimed a, a human rights filing against me because I was, um, as you may recall, um, discriminatory. Um, and the actual HR violation paperwork indicated that Professor Vince Hui is discriminating against people who plagiarize, um, which was hilarious fun. And then subsequent to the writing, she also didn't use spell check because she wasn't the brightest student. Uh, in the rationale, she said Vince Hui is discriminatory against not people who plagiarize, but pilgrims. Um, so that was a hilarious one. So of course I had all the evidence. I sent it to the appropriate authorities and she was adamant that she didn't plagiarize or anything. And then finally she decided to lawyer up because of course, you know, we have that ability to bring in the legal arm if you want to. And at that point when her lawyers had requested all the evidence to be seen, uh, her, her lawyers dropped the case. She didn't want to drop the case, but her lawyers were like, hey man, you, you're, you're dumb if you go into this. So needless to say, uh, when I went to the hearing, she didn't show up. Uh, and that is why she is- You won. With us. Yep, I have, a, I have a better than perfect record for appeals and everything. So, um, so this, is, this, is, this is the good things. But anyways, that's, that's, a, that's a story. Um, do you have any other fun stories to recount now that we kind of got this I all like set up? I feel like a downer. This isn't a downer. This is good stuff, man. People know now what not to do. See, I've been told that I'm all about the positive reinforcement. You um, are? I don't know. I'm, I wasn't listening. But they said something about reinforcement. So I'm assuming it's positive. So come on. Give, give, me, some good, give me some good stories, man. Well, I was going to say, let's talk about like a student who has won some award or gotten some phenomenal job. There's so many examples of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many <laughs> examples. That, and they put them in the, in, the, in, in the web and all that stuff. But I, I can tell you um a couple of at least one really good story um especially for students that are kind of down in the dumps right now as they're finally finalizing their uh, their final projects um one of my colleagues when i was in school he really uh got his butt handed to him in structures right to the point where he failed structures okay and he was all paranoid about this because if you fail structures, uh, you also don't do so well in, in studio and stuff. So he was really bummed out because he was a really good studio person. But um, he didn't, he, he marginally passed everything else, but that was because it was the grades were incumbent on structures. 
So needless to say, eventually I, uh, I wound up, he failed a couple of times structures, but I ended up teaching him structures uh, because that's what happened in, when, in the empire when I was teaching yeah. there. So I ended up teaching him structures and he passed, right? I helped him out a lot. But the best part was that even though he got his butt handed to him by structures and he really you know, put like a hundred percent effort into making sure he got better. He then took it upon himself to enter a steel design competition, oh, an international yay. steel design competition, right? All right. And not surprisingly, he won it. Okay. Right on. And and that was really good. And of course, it was it wasn't even for school. It was just a competition he did for himself. And yeah. then just to add, you know, that little because remember, there's two things that motivate people, hate and guilt in architecture. So just to stick it to the prof that failed him, Ooh. he did it. He did the competition again the next year, and he won back to back. Can we say so who this is? It's, he's not a Ryerson student, but, um, I, and I, I know he's too modest to say it, but I, 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 whenever I get him to come in to do reviews, I remind people, it's, this is the guy that I'm talking about. So Aww. those of you that are worried about structures, those of you guys worried about um, you know, doing poorly in courses, listen, we all mess up in courses, right? I think if you talk to any prof, in all honesty, they would say, man, uh, you shouldn't ever look at the stuff that I did in first year, right? Or you know what, uh, I, would, I would be very hard pressed to let you or let anyone know what I uh, did in first year because I'd be out of a job, right? Because um, that's embarrassing. So I think that a lot of people are preoccupied with, oh man, if I don't do well in studio or don't do well in courses, I mean, you're in school, you're learning, right? And, and as long as you're able to keep your head above water and continue, you're good. As long as you're open to learning, you're good. Um, because even the grade, even though the grades might not necessarily reflect it, I think that uh, the, the, take solace in the fact that there are various opportunities outside of school that allow you to demonstrate your excellence. And um, listen, there is no question in my mind that that student knows way more about structures than any of us, than even the guy that ended up teaching the course, right, than I do. Uh, he, he probably knows more about architectural design of structures than I do. Cool. And, um, and, and mind you, he failed the course a few times and it also impacted some of the studios. So I just think that that's a really uplifting story for all of you guys that are like struggling with studio and the technical stuff or struggling with say structures, right? So that, that's my happy story for today. That's an excellent happy story. Well, you know, every so often I can tell them, right? Come on. Geez. All right. Thumbs up. And that's it. That's it for you. Uh, I don't have like happy stories like that. Wow. No, it's true. I uh, can't really. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, no, no. I know. I know a happy-ish story, right? And, and I think it does cater to specifically you. You are not only uh, a really good prof, but you're also able to run the firm at the same time and identify talent. And would it be, I don't want to speak too much on this one, but it's not uncommon for you to see really good promise in some really good talent. And I know that you have hired uh, many of our students to help you with projects and they were just in first year. Am I correct? Uh, yes. Yes. So, yes. so that's the thing. Like, yes. I, I think sure. that for a lot of you guys that are listening, you know, profs aren't just simply here to punish you and give you bad grades, right? We're also, again, as the we- best. We're here to like cherry pick the best because we get first dibs. Uh, uh, I was going to frame it a better way, but damn. Oh. Um, yeah, I was going to say that we invest and we nurture and we, you know, sow the seeds and reap the rewards. But yeah, okay, fine. We cherry pick too. Um, yes. But uh, this, yeah, like in this case, you, you found a really good student. And even though that student was in first year, you still took a chance. I mean, not really a chance, but because he knew the guy. There was, was solid, no chance but... taken. This student was always going to be awesome. Yeah, and and I but I think that that's to just let students know that 
you know, um, there's a lot to be said beyond just simply grades. And, and in this case, the student was very, obviously they got good grades too, but they also demonstrated excellence. And that, that ability to be teachable, that ability to pick up things, that ability to take initiative, I suspect, I don't want to speak out of line and speak for you, Christine, but I suspect that that's, those are characteristics that that student kind of epitomized. Yeah, and also, I mean, like we are, I mean, well, no, I'm, we're fortunate in that we get to like pick who we want to work with. And frankly, we just want to work with uh, talented, but also just really nice people. We want to know that we're kind of paying people to assist them with their education and that know that that this person is like going to do a good job and not just like squander it or just be mean to people or whatever. We want to work with nice people in a very simple way. Is that why I've never worked with you? That's true. We've never worked together. Ding, ding, ding. Ah, thanks. One and with that, and with that, Christine, get off my show. Um, yeah, done and okay. done. No, but uh, Christine, again, thank you for taking the time out to yeah, chat it up. And I hope that uh, students, uh, I'm going to put a link or two to Christine's website um, to, so you can see some of her work um, and see what's coming up. Uh, but also, uh, just Christine, uh, again, thanks for the time and the I know we, we talked about investing a lot of effort and energy, but even this is something that's recorded so that the kids can hear um, even when we're not with them. You made it sound like we're gonna like pass on. Um, you might not, but hey, not I'm, I'm the one. That, yeah, well, we'll see about that. Thank you again, Christine, you, and Christine. you take I'm care. Students are very appreciative to have this series. So thanks for investing in it. No problem. Okay, bye.